Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Hillcrest. Uh, I'm Brian Stefile. I'm one of the elders here, and I have the privilege to continue us through the Gospel of Luke this morning. Um, as we're continuing our sermon series, we first discussed several weeks ago, right? Luke is, is um, writing this to the Gospel, this Gospel to Theophilus, so he will have a certainty for things that have been taught, uh, and we can have that certainty today. Uh, and I don't know if you're remembering to set your alarms to 104 for Luke 1-4, uh, to meet with Jesus every day and increase your certainty about him, uh, and asking God, what are you inviting me to today? And uh, just uh, yesterday, uh, Nate, uh, give a shout out to him, he's helping me, uh, or yeah, he's basically doing the drywall in my workout room, uh, and at 104, his phone went off. So, um, so again, we're the certainty there, uh, what Luke is telling us. Uh, and so Luke sort of breaks down the early part of his gospel into sort of four acts. Uh, the first part uh, is the birth of John the Baptist foretold, uh, followed by the birth of Jesus foretold. And last week we discussed the birth of John the Baptist. And today we are going to focus on the fourth act, the birth of Jesus. And again, we want this confidence not to be a blind faith, but Luke is telling us this is rooted in truth. Uh, so today as we focus on the birth of Jesus I want you to do one thing for me, though, before we get into today's passage. So often we read these scriptures during the Christmas season. And when David asked me to preach on this, I'm like, seriously, David, I've got to do the Christmas story and it's not even Christmas time? But there's a purpose there, right? I want to separate from the Hallmark version of Christmas, from the Charlie Brown Christmas, the Precious Moments Nativity set. And those traditions are fun and I love Christmas time, but let's put that aside today. Let's not minimize the impact of today's passage with the commercialization of Christmas. Luke is not telling us some bedtime story we tell our kids on Christmas Eve. He's telling us about the beginning of the Jesus Revolution. So if you'll turn to your Bibles with me, we'll be going over chapter 2, verse 1 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat before you, or you can follow along up front, but uh, we'll begin here. Uh, Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 21, a passage that I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have heard multiple times before. But in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to register with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. And while they were there, a time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger, because there is no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased." When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, 
which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the sayings that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. At the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. Uh, We just thank you for this passage, Lord. But please, let's step aside and forget the Christmas traditions and really look at this with fresh eyes today. Open our hearts, Lord. And I am... I learned so much just preparing these passages, Lord, and I realize I'm so ill-equipped. I am not, I'm not worthy to be up here, Lord. Only you are. So let you increase, me decrease, Lord. And as we learned about last week, as we talked about the quote from C.S. Lewis, from Lucy, as I see you, Aslan, Jesus, every time I see you, you seem bigger. And as we go through your word, Lord, let us take a step back and say, God, you are so much bigger than I thought. Amen. All right, I'm oh. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The decree of Caesar Augustus was that all the world, all the inhabited world of Rome, the civilized world, should be registered for the purpose of taxation. The story of Jesus' birth begins during the reign of one of the most remarkable men in ancient history. There's even less written here by Luke. Right, if you look back at Luke takes 20 verses to talk about Jesus, his birth, two verses to talk about John, because Jesus is the greater. And he's less about Caesar Augustus than John. So let's go down the path of history to better understand the world, the context in which Jesus was born. Caesar Augustus was born with the name Octavian. Octavian's grandmother was the sister of Julius Caesar. In other words, he was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Now, Julius Caesar, seeing his talent and drive, adopted Octavian as his son, making him an official heir in 45 BC. And within that same year, Julius Caesar was murdered. Octavian was joined with two others, Mark Anthony and Lepidus, And Rome was split in threes. There was civil war for for decades. Octavian and Anthony eventually pushed Lepidus out and won that victory. In the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, Octavian eventually defeated Cleopatra and Mark Anthony, making him the sole ruler of Rome. He lived until 14 AD, in which point he was succeeded by Tiberius, the same emperor her of Rome during Jesus' ministry. Octavian was the sole ruler of the Roman world. And what's impressive is here's this man in the marble and ivory tower of Rome. He gave a command for a census and the entire civilized world responded. But we need to remember that God is sovereign and he has hand in this historic event making this occur to accomplish God's will. Now, Luke is writing about this census that took place in 4 to 6 BC. It took place under Caesar Augustus 
for the purpose of taxation, as we've talked about. So each was going to be registered to his own town. So citizens would have to travel to their hometown, home city, some point in that census year. And most often this was because family had land there. So Augustus was known to be really sensitive to his subjects. And so he knew that this would be a burden to make the travel and also the taxation, right? Still today, taxes are a burden, right? It wasn't any different back then. So Augustus knew this, and so he tried to soften the blow by making people go back to their family. And see family they may not have seen for years, decades. So Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So based on this passage and what we know about the census, it appears that Joseph had still had ties to Bethlehem. Joseph himself or his family owned land. And so Joseph and Mary, they know they're pregnant, and they know at some point in this year they have to travel to Bethlehem. They can do it now or they can wait until they have a newborn and they decide, obviously, this is the best time to take it. As they make the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, from Galilee, it's about 80 mile, uh, 80 mile drive, 80 mile walk south. And I find it so interesting how Luke is such attention to details because it's confusing at first why he writes 80 miles up, right? If, if I'm looking at a map, shouldn't it be going down? But Bethlehem is a higher elevation than Galilee and Nazareth. So literally, Joseph and Mary are going up to Bethlehem. Such detail that Luke was paying attention to. Now, I want you to forget the traditional Christmas story that we often hear about. Likely, I hate to break this to you, there's no donkey. Okay? This is an assumption. Maybe there was. But Scripture doesn't state this. There's also likely they were not traveling alone. They're probably traveling as a group. Others are making the trip for the census. Others are on business. There's safety in numbers. So Joseph and Mary are part of a small entourage making this trip together. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There are several other fallacies I want to dispel. First of all, the text says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. It doesn't say when they arrived. So the notion that Mary and Joseph arrive at Bethlehem, it's dark, they're knocking on every door trying to find a place to stay, is inaccurate. The passage implies that they had been there for some time with family before the birth of Jesus. And we talk about the manger, we often picture the stable that they were in, and there's some controversy there, but the same word that Luke uses, the same Greek word when he talks about the inn, is actually the same word that he uses in chapter 22, verse 11, when he talks about the upper room. And so here, Luke may be talking about a guest room. So, right, if all these family are traveling for the census, they're coming together for a family reunion, there's no room in the guest room, the inn. Right? If we have family stay over at our place, they... One of my kids gives up their bedrooms, right? Someone was already staying there. So they had to be in the lower level where animals were often kept at night to come in. And so there was a manger inside their house. And remember, in chapter 1, Mary had went to visit her, her relative Elizabeth several months earlier. 
She lived just a few miles away in the hill country of Judea. So if there really was no place for them to stay, they only would have to travel a few more miles to stay with Zachariah and Elizabeth. So likely they were in a family home, but were in the lower level. Now, even though we have to maybe recalibrate our thinking about the original Christmas, the purpose is still the same. Jesus was still born in a lowly circumstance, in a small, cast-aside town to parents of low position. He was born miraculously from a virgin birth, but still of low position. You see, Israel was waiting for a Savior for 400 years. And God is reliable. God shows up, but yet unpredictable. Not how people would have thought. God is so reliable, but yet so often unpredictable. Because Jesus is a king like no other. The Messiah King was here, God incarnate, born of a virgin, came to earth as a baby to save us from our sins. Have you ever stopped and thought deeply about this? Have you just taken it for granted? The most, one of the most miraculous events of virgin birth. Luke, in the previous chapter, discusses Zechariah and Elizabeth getting pregnant. Right? And he's trying to give us confidence. Because I'm sure people back then were like, sure, Joseph, yep, she's a virgin. Right? They were skeptics then as there are now. But if the lesser of the two, John the Baptist, was born from a woman past her childbearing years, right? I just picture... Elizabeth being 60 or 70 years old, clearly past childbearing years. No one could doubt that this was a miracle from God. So Luke doubles down again when he talks about Mary, her betrothed, we're going to Bethlehem. They had not consummated their marriage. And Luke is doubling down saying, if this great miracle they did with Elizabeth, how much greater the virgin birth, giving us confidence. And think about it. When did you first wrestle with the virgin birth. You see, intellectually, it's, right, it's not possible. But if you're like me, we never really struggled with this. It's always part of the Christmas story. We've known it since we've been a young child. It just always was the virgin birth. We hear about it in the Christmas carols. We take this for granted. Of course, Jesus was born from a virgin. It's the foundation but do we really believe it? As, as Craig said, do we believe it? How my unbelief. If this is such a certainty, why do I question God and doubt at times? For example, let me tell you, many of you know I have five daughters. Two are adopted, three are biological. And we have another daughter waiting for us in China. And we got the referral a while ago and she was three years old, was going to turn four the next day, so four years old. Our youngest daughter was adopted from China as well. It took three months from when we got the referral to when we went. And so we assumed we'd be going in December. And through somewhat of an incompetent social worker and a very difficult government official, five and a half months later, we still hadn't gone, and then COVID hit. She is seven today. I was talking to Pastor Fred this week. He said, how are you doing with it? I said, I'll be frank, I don't think about it all that often. It's probably a defense mechanism. He said, what do you mean by that? Well, I said, I just don't really think about it. And 
He said, do you trust God? And how do we know if we're trusting God? Or do I doubt God? And I think one of the barometers is, is there a contentment there? Is there joy in Jesus? And if I'm honest, there's not contentment there. I don't understand what God is doing, and I doubt it. But in the context of preparing the sermon, when I see the virgin birth, that's a stake in the ground that Luke is saying he's so powerful, don't doubt him. If God can perform the virgin birth, how much more can he break down barriers that are getting me to China? So I need to not doubt and know he can do it. And obviously there's a reason. God is reliable, but so often unpredictable. There's a confidence I have in the things that I've been taught. Since the virgin birth is true, what problems do I have that God can't handle? In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. See, we often think about these angels appearing to the shepherds because they were the outcasts. They're poor, they're dirty. Though this is partially true, the shepherds that the angels appeared to were fulfilling temple duties. How do we know that? There is a law, a pharisaical law in Israel that shepherds could not be anywhere else but in the wilderness. They were such outcasts, they couldn't be near the cities, they had to be in the wilderness. And so the fact that these sheep were just outside the town of Bethlehem and not in the wilderness tells us that these shepherds were unique. They weren't just shepherds, they were priest shepherds. The shepherds were in the fields surrounding Bethlehem, were not in the wilderness. Though they were performing somewhat menial tasks, their purpose was preparing the lambs for Passover. They made sure these lambs were without blemish and completely unharmed. In the oral tradition as well, they state that the Messiah would be revealed from the Migdal Elder, which translates the Tower of the Flock. And this is an actual tower outside of Bethlehem. It was a lookout tower, if you will. The shepherd priest, besides being among the flock, would also have a presence in this tower, the Migdal Eder, at night. So when Luke says the shepherds were watching over their flocks by night, they were in this tower over their flocks. The detail that Luke has, keeping watch over their flocks by night. The shepherds performing their typical tasks when the night sky lights up and the angel speaks to them. Then a multitude of angels sing. 
and tell them this message about the birth of a child. And we see it multiple times in this passage. Why does Luke keep talking about the swaddling cloths? He doesn't just mention it once. Everything we look at for Luke, there's a purpose. The swaddling cloths were just not ordinary cloths. These were not rags that Mary and Joseph brought from the town, from home, or found in the lower level of the room. The swaddling cloths were the same as those used in the temple. Specifically, the shepherd priests, the swaddling cloths were used to keep the lambs unharmed and free of blemish. Jesus was wrapped in the exact same cloths as the sacrificial lambs would have been. We don't really know where they got these, but there's some speculation that Zechariah and Elizabeth gave them to them. The shepherds were probably not fully aware of the significance of what this meant. The angels declaring that Mosaic law was going to change. The time for animal sacrifice was about to end. The shepherd priests responsible for the sacrificial lambs were the first to know that the permanent sacrificial lamb was born. Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice to pay for one for the man's sins once and for all through his death and resurrection. When the angels went away into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see the things that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And they saw it, they made known the sayings that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as had been told to them. After hearing this great message, the shepherds went with haste. Sound familiar? Chapter 1. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judea to see Elizabeth. And the shepherds give us a great example to follow today. You see, the shepherds' response where they were in awe. They obeyed and went with haste. They shared what they were told. They shared the good news. And then they praised God. And 2,000 years later, what's our response to Jesus Christ? We should stand in awe of him. We open up his word. We obey his commandments. And it spills over. And we share with others. And we praise God. This is what we talk about so often at Hillcrest. We talk about being an everyday missionary. The shepherd's response are awe, obeying, sharing, and praising. It's the steps, same steps that we have. There's a joy in Jesus. So we spend time in his word. We're biblically saturated. We're desperate independent prayer. We want to tell the good news. We're intentional apprenticeships. Who in your life needs to hear about the miracle of the virgin birth? Who is on your pray, watch, step list? But Mary treasured all these things up, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told. Right? When, when you look at births in the United States or just births, right? All these people come and there's all this excitement. And then two, three weeks after 
child's born, just you and the child, and things are tough again. Right? Now imagine Mary, right? They're in the family's house. These shepherds come. There's this great story. They leave, and then a silence falls over the house. She looks down at her son, miraculously conceived through the Holy Spirit. She knows there's going to be a great work done through him, but she know, does she know what's going to be done to him? She looks at Jesus in the swaddling cloths, knows her for temple sacrifice, and she ponders these things in her heart. The end of eight, end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Jesus. Jesus means to deliver, to rescue. The Greek form Yeshua translates God is salvation or God saves. The invisible God made visible. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the visible manifestation of an invisible God. Jesus' purpose was to be the sacrifice for our sins. Wrapped in swaddling cloths similar to the Passover lambs. Don't miss this part of the gospel, just screaming what's going to happen in his life to restore our relationship with God the Father. So what do we do with this? If you have yet, haven't yet come to treasure Jesus, don't wait any longer. Jesus lowered himself from glory to a dusty manger for you and I. Don't feel like you need to clean up before coming to him. Accept him today. Come to him who you are. He will clean you up. If you want our prayer team, we'll be willing to pray with you afterwards. The pastors would love to talk to you. For those of you who already treasure Jesus, when we focus on his birth, as written in the Gospel of Luke, I can't help but, can't help but notice this upside-down nature. Right, all summer we talked about the upside-down kingdom of God through parables. It's so counterintuitive to the world. The birth of Jesus is so different. We compare the world's version of kings to God's version. You see, there's Octavian. There's, not a, there's a reason that Luke starts this with Caesar Augustus. There's Octavian, the sole ruler of the Roman world. Rome was initially a republic, a, na a nation governed by laws, not by men. Octavian would change all of that, and he arranged the Roman Senate to give him the title Augustus, which literally means exalted or sacred one. Rome was no longer a republic governed by laws, but became an empire governed by one man, an emperor. And Caesar Augustus was the first emperor of Rome. Caesar Augustus. He wanted Rome to be glorified again, back to the glory days. You see, it was ravaged by years of civil wars. Farms were destroyed and neglected. Towns had been sacked. Poverty was extremely high. Crime and violence were rampant. Morals continued to decay and decline. There was destitution. There was chaos. The ancient world needed a savior. The ancient world 
needed a savior. It doesn't sound too far off from us today. And early in Caesar Augustus' reign, Haley's comet passed over Rome. Augustus claimed that it was the spirit of Julius Caesar entering heaven. If Julius Caesar was a god, then he has his heir, Augustus, was the son of a god and therefore also God. In the time when the world needed a savior, Caesar Augustus claimed himself a god. Octavian, a man, changed his name to Caesar Augustus and made himself a deity. Exalted, sacred, and living in opulence among the elite of Rome. In the same time the world needed a savior, Jesus Christ was born in a lowly manger in the lower portion of a small house in a small town in Israel, occupied by one of the largest empires in the world, ruled by Augustus, a man who wanted to become a god. God lowered himself, became a man, and also changed his name. God changed his name from Yahweh, I am who I am, to Jesus, Yahweh saves there's a reason Luke is bookending both of this passage. One was Caesar Augustus, a man becoming a god, changing his name. And on the other end, Jesus, God, lowering himself to man and changing his name to God, Yahweh saves. Jesus was not born into privilege. He was born in Nazarene, one of the forgotten towns of Israel, worthless. So passage, has anything ever good come out of Nazareth? The Son of God, Jesus Lord himself from glory to become a man. And John's just a man, the most helpless form of a human, a baby. The birth of this child was so simple in a small, humble village. Importance is not the matter of the environment nor the social status in God's eyes. The importance is a function of one's role in God's work. Jesus is not important because of his settings. He is important because of who he is before God. The most humble birth for the most exalted figure ever born. Scripture screams out the contrast of how we do things. There's a tension there. As I reflect on my life in the context of this passage, this is hard. This reflection, do I need to lead to revision in my life? The humility that Jesus showed, humility. That's a major challenge for me. My selfishness, my jealousy, I want to build my own kingdom, stands in stark contrast to God's humbleness. The king of glory lowered himself, but yet too often, I try to raise myself up. Where is my treasure? I'm going to tell you a story and give you a little window into my world. And you'll question whether you, why you ever made me an elder. We built a house about a year and a half ago. And I, and I love our house. But there's one room in this house that is the pinnacle of the house. It is my workout room. This workout room is actually bigger than my first apartment I lived in 20 years ago. I should be so happy that I have the space. But we are over budget. And I had a budget for the room and workout equipment and everything, and we were over budget. What got cut? 
my stuff. And I'd be lying if I say I wasn't selfish, I wasn't angry, I wasn't resentful. We don't need cabinets in our walk-in closet. We need the workout room. Now as we have money, I'm like, okay. No, the debt comes first. And I talked to David quite a bit about this. He's heard it at nauseam. And every time he drives by, he makes a comment to me because Nicole said this one day. She said, Brian, it's not that the deck is that important to me. It's every time I drive by our house and I see that plank of wood where the deck is supposed to go, I know our house is not finished. And in my sinful nature, I said, well, every time I walk downstairs and I work out and see the studs, I know my workout room's not finished. <laughs> I might have slept on the couch that night. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but Dave will tell us all the time, I think that house isn't done. And I joke about it, but there's a selfishness there. I make the money. Why can't I spend it how I want? So we get to do the deck this year. And we're doing some of the workout room. I have to wait another year. Why am I not content? My selfishness. God, I want to build my own kingdom. I don't want to share my wealth. About six weeks ago, I got a phone call from Marnie, who does great work with an organization I work with, New Life for Haiti. We haven't been to Haiti in a while because of COVID and <clears throat> just the unrest in that country. She called me up and she said, hey, we're doing a fundraising drive. I was hoping you could give as, we, as you've done in the past. And I had money set aside. God, that was for my gym. I don't want to share it. I'm selfish. I'm your elder. Where is my treasure? Jason, Jack, and David can all test. What do I talk about? I talk about my gym, what's going to happen to it, what my plans are. Do I talk more about my gym or more about God? What is your treasure? Is it your career? Your 401k? Your social status? Your family? Your creator? Am I more like Caesar Augustus, making myself a god in my own realm, or more like Jesus, living humbly, seeking God's glory? Where's my treasure? Do I practice kingdom living or empire living? Am I living as part of God's kingdom, subject to his will and reign and follow his commandments? Do I practice empire living and making myself ruler and doing what I want to do? I know the answer should be my creator, but way too often it's not. As I reflect on that as I prepare the sermon, do my actions and my thoughts align that he is really what provides me significance? If he took all of it away, where I still have significance in him. Before there is glory, there must be humility. This is the way of the kingdom of God. The first will be last, and the last will be first. I invite the worship team up as I close. There's an author, Tabithi, and I won't even say how his last name, who has a quote, true greatness is not always visible greatness. True greatness will not 
always be visible greatness. God incarnate in a manger, an animal's feeding trough, smelly, stinky, muddy, puts our glory-craving hearts in check. Matthew Henry states it best when he says, He well knew how unwilling we are to be meanly lodged, clothed, or fed. Especially in this country, when I compare what Haiti has. He knew how well unwilling we are to be meanly lodged, clothed, or fed. How we desire to have our children decorated and indulged. How apt the poor are to envy the rich. And how prone the rich are to disdain the poor. But when we by faith view the Son of God being made man and lying in a manger, God glorified in a lowly manger, our vanity, our ambition, and our envy are in check. We cannot, with this object rightly before us, when we look at the manger and what God did, lowering himself for us, we cannot rightly seek great things for ourselves and our children. Jesus is the ultimate prize. Nothing in the world compares. And I believe that, but God, help my unbelief. Can we follow Mary's and the shepherd's leads? You see, if Jesus is the ultimate treasure, we want to saturate ourselves in his word, biblically saturated. And then we ponder all his words in our heart as Mary pondered. And then we can't help but desire to tell others as that overflows, as the shepherds did. So I think in any area of life, these three things hold true. Regardless of what your passion is, whether it's my gym, the NFL, your career, right? What your passion is, you spend time thinking about it and delving over it and researching it. Your passion leads to you pondering whatever that is. And it can't help but bubble up to the surface as you want to tell others about it, whatever that passion is. And I'm so convicted when I think about what comes out of my mouth. Where are my treasures? Is my passion truly rooted in Jesus Christ? And I ponder his word and leads me to tell others about him? Am I telling others about all the cool things that I'm doing? Am I practicing kingdom living or empire living? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, but boy, this is hard. I wish you were born in a palace. It'd make living here so much easier. But instead, you chose to be born in a lowly manger, and it puts me to shame. Because I want to be great. Let me realize that greatness is not the definition of the world's definition of great, but the greatness is being a servant and lowering myself as you did. Just thank you and praise you for your word. As hard as this is, Lord, help us to really truly treasure you as number one and that your love and everything great about you spills out in those around us. Just thank you and praise you for you coming to this world to save us and humbling yourself. Let us do the same. Amen.